Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. I mean, and I'm a grateful recovering alcoholic. How sweet it is. Today has been one of my most wonderful sober days. It began off with the smoking and his lovely wife meet me, my lovely wife at the airport, and it's been uphill ever since. I want you to know I feel good like an ex-drunk should. Oh, uh, it's my third time that I've been out this way, and I and I'm grateful. I love Omaha. I love this brand of AA you all have. And to be invited back for the third time, I know that God working through me, I must be doing something right. Didn't come out here this time to check on my mutual of Omaha policy. (laughs) I came out here to get me some fuzzy wuzzies and some hugs. (laughs) And I'm here to share my experience and hope with people that I love dearly. So glad to see Reggie, a dude I met some eight years ago. Only dude I know in this fellowship that's sick and I was. <laughs> Love you. See many people, many faces here that I met here are in Lincoln. And I'm grateful. You know that lovely Alan out of mine, in other words, she has let all of you all know I qualify. To be here. So I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on no drunk old because there's nobody out there need to know how to drink. Because <laughs> I'm looking at some pros. Oh, Smokey, today I'm convinced that he's a pro. <laughs> so he don't need old M to talk about drinking. But you know, when I came through those doors some 19 and a half years ago, I was a sick dude. And the longer that I stay sober, the more I realize how sick I really was. I wasn't only a chronic alcoholic. Ended up with this dread and terrible disease of alcoholism. I had another disease that I like to describe as a disease I personally call po-o-me-ism. <laughs> I think some of you all know what I'm talking about. I know one thing that kept me drunk for many, many years. Po-o-e-m-gill. 
Wife told you on many occasions I had holidays and I, I, I didn't need much excuse to drink. If you wanted a reason to drink, I could give it to you. Oh, oh, me. Let me give you two quickies of, of, of two of my favorite poor me-isms. One of my favorites was the, was the fact that I was born a little bastard child. Some 68 years down in North Carolina, being a born a bastard child, I thought it was one of the most terrible things that could happen to a guy. My mother had 10 children. I was the baby. And then none of us look alike. Oh, yes, go ahead and laugh. I can laugh with you. But I'll tell you, some 68 years ago, you wouldn't have laughed. Fabulous 12 steps that you all have given me to guide my life. You know, I think about the war in the Persian Gulf. I don't sweat it. I'm not worried. But I'm so glad. And I hope they don't have no M over there. Because the little stint I did in World War II, being the alcoholic I was, I firmly believe if they hadn't put me out of that army in nine months, we'd have lost that damn war. Because you see, when I found out they wasn't going to let me be General MacArthur's assistant, <laughs> I got drunk at him. Some of the things I did in that army, I don't talk about them anymore. But you know, I'm going to spend my time tonight telling you all about some miracles. I believe in miracles. I'm looking at some miracles. And you are looking at a miracle. I have many miracles that has happened in my life, but there's three miracles that stand out in my memory. And I want to share them with you quickly. And let me start off with what I like to call my miracle of discovery. You know, at the height of my alcoholism, I had married Anne and these four beautiful children. And I never share with a group like this unless I let Anne know publicly that I love her was staying with me during these trying times. Sometimes Ann will look at me when we're in one of our playful moods, and she said, M, if I had been the alcoholic, would you have stayed with me? And my first thing I said, hell no. <laughs> I'd have been in Mexico. Picking beans or doing something. So I let them know I love her for staying with me during this period. Because I firmly believe that every family where there's an alcoholic, 
Somebody has to reach out for help. They're going to repeat that. Okay. In every family where there's an alcoholic, somebody has to reach out for help. And I know now that I was too sick and too honoring and too egotistical to reach out. And it was this lovely lady who reached out for help. Don't know if you want to be repetitious. She told you her story. But at the height of our alcoholism, she didn't leave me, but she reached out for help. And that's when she discovered Eleanor. I remember every Sunday evening about 3 o'clock, Ann would leave home. I could look at the big clock in the middle of town in Salem on the courthouse, and I could time her within five minutes. She would leave home, and she would come back about six. And we just moved in this little new house she told you that she bought. I take no credit. I was too drunk. But she just bought this little new home for us. These beautiful four children and a beautiful dog. And she would leave and she would leave at three and come back at six. And at first I just loved it. Because it gave me and my drunk friends three hours of unobstructed drinking. You see a woman standing up over your shoulder when you're trying to drink uh, on Sunday evening, telling you you ought to uh, save your money and, and, and not spend it on liquor. You, you, you know, you ought to be spending that money on the children. See, that messes up a man's drinking. And when she went away, me and the boys could get together downstairs and, and we could just puke and pee. We could just do anything we wanted to do. And I tell you, I loved it. But you know, we alcoholics are jive turkeys. We con artists. But see, we don't stay drunk all the time. See, a lot of times we play drunk. On these Sunday evenings, Ann would dress up so pretty. That's during the time you gals was wearing your dresses up even with your knees. And Ann had the prettiest knees. And she would take that old amber hand, push it off to the side. And she'd put on that blue eyeshadow. And she would spray that evening in Africa or Paris or something. I don't know what the hell. But she'd get in that car and she would wink her eye at me. And all she would go. And I'm telling you, during those days, I was at the height of my alcoholism. And alcohol was the number one priority in my life. 
sex mean absolutely nothing to me. I thought it was foolish. Why waste time having sex when you could be drinking? But I used to look at Ann and I and I said, now you you got a wife nine years younger than you. You got a wife that is beautiful enough to, to, to have any man she wants in the valley. She's smart. And you ain't doing what you're supposed to be doing at home. Tell you the truth, I got worried. I thought some dude over somewhere was helping me out with my love affair. I decided to follow in, got in my old truck and followed the car, and she went over to the medical foundation where I work. I turned around when I got at the gate. By this time, I was chief steward of a large union. I was supervising about 19 or 20 shop stewards. And that Monday morning, I gave them assignment, and I told them that Ann came through that gate about five minutes after three, and I wanted them to follow her and find out where she went and what she did. And that was an order. The next Monday morning, one of my better shop stewards, Tom Calfee, came to me and said, M and indeed came through that gate. And she went over to a building, number 10. And she went in the first floor. And she went in a little door. And I said, what was behind the door, Calfee? You see, we had... 2,100 psychiatric patients. But I knew they didn't stay crazy all the time. <laughs> Captain said, I don't know what's behind that door, M. I said, well, you better hurry up and find out. He said, but wait. I remember one thing. On that door, it said A-L-N-O-N. L non. And I said, what is that? He said, I don't know. And I said, you better hurry up and find out. And it was that day that we found the chaplain and he explained to us. And he looked right at me and it said, it's the situation where the loved ones of alcoholics, big honorary alcoholics like you, Come to learn how to cope. And I remember the moss I felt that day. Here this lovely lady was spending every Sunday evening. Learning to live. With a big honorary alcoholic. Like me. And started to work that literature trick on me. You guys in Al-Anon was teaching her what I call the Al-Anon tricks of the trade. And I think as I look around this room and see the young people, I think the higher power would have me enlighten you about a few of these tricks. Because you see, after you've been called old SOB for years, and all at once your wife starts calling you sweetie pie. 
you could have a heart attack. <laughs> this is what Andy started doing to me. I wondered what is happening to this woman. I could spend all my money. She would never say a word. I could curse the top of my voice. I could wreck the car. She wouldn't say a word. And I was wondering what is happening with this lady. And she started to bring that literature on. And everywhere I look around the house, it would be some of that literature. I would look in my jacket pocket looking for a cigarette duck. You see, you can't drink heavy and smoke too. I'll smoke all my cigarettes and choke and have a half a cigarette. And I look in my pocket just to have me a, 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 a cigarette before I went to work. And I'd find some of that literature. I would start to put on my shoes. Down in my shoe toe would be some literature. And I remember I used to call Ann and I would curse her. And I said, Ann, look, you could go to that Alatron or Alaron or Alapon, ever what it is, but stop putting this garbage in my clothes. You're going to make me late for work and I'm going to lose my job. And all she would do was look at me and smile. She smiled so much I started calling it the Alanon smile. I woke up one morning, I went in the toilet, and I was sitting there tending to my own business. Wasn't bothering a soul. And I started to unroll the toilet paper. Oh, yes, you guessed it, and out fell some literature. I, I made up my mind that morning. I said, now this gal, if she would go to this length, I'm going to read this garbage this morning. Ladies and gentlemen, it was the 20 questions. I remember standing there before that mirror, reading those 20 questions and tears started to come down my face. And I never will forget it, even though I was half drunk. I said, my God, I must be one of those things. You see, I thought an alcoholic was the lowest down creature on God's green earth. And here these 20 questions was telling old him. Alcoholic and had been one for a long time. And I remember coming out of that bathroom that morning. And Ann was standing there in the little foyer smiling. And she caught me in my weakest moment. And she propositioned me. And she said, Em, you know, I told you I was going to leave you. But if you'll do what I asked you to do today, I'll consider staying. And she told me there were two men that she wanted me to meet. That evening. And I said, okay, dear. And she was going out to work, and the last thing she said to me, 
Don't drink today. That was like sticking a knife in me because it had been 15 or 20 years. Maybe longer than that, that I had not had some type of alcohol in my body. That day I went to work determined. Come home. And it seemed like everybody at that medical foundation had some liquor or beer that day. But I was determined to keep my commitment to my loved one. The only person that I ever was capable of having any love for in my drunkenness. I love those kids. I love my new house. I love my dog. It was the only security I'd ever had, and I did not want to lose it. That evening, after I'd sneaked a couple of drinks, I went home. There in my living room sat two men, dressed to perfection, Partly $500 suit, shoes shine to perfection. A new Buick Riviera sitting in my driveway. They told me they was from AA. And I just thought that they were two of the biggest liars that I'd ever heard. They told me they too had been at the depths of alcoholism and they had gone to a program called AA that had changed their lives. When they left, I told them, thank you for coming. If I ever need you, I'll call you. And I looked around and there stood Anne. She was all smiles. She knew that I'd met the people. That was to change our lives. It was only a couple of weeks later that I'd gone on a drunk and went into DTs. I'd call Ann up and I told her, send for those men. I surrender. Another other day, one of my friends, one of my people, earth people, I call them, was not in this fabulous program. Told me to go to hell. And I said, don't tell me that. I've already been. If you ever had DTs, you've been to hell too. Because that was a living hell. I remember they took me to my first AA meeting. I discovered the program and the roadmap that was to save my life. Miracle of discovery. I discovered a program through Eleanor. I remember that night it was a dude standing up behind a rostrum, similar to this one. And he told how rotten his life had been, what he had done, and how sweet it was then. I didn't hear much that night because I was afraid. But on the way home that night, I looked over at Ann and she was all smiles. Have you ever seen Alanon the first night she get her drunk to a meeting? 
They are happy people. And she told me she loved me and how proud she was. After I got home, I started to think about this AA thing. I decided, yes, I love Ann. I don't want her to leave me. But I'm not going to let a decision of this magnitude, I'm not going to let Alanon or nothing, nobody else make this decision. I need to go talk to the smartest people in the Roanoke Valley. I went out to my bootleg joint. And them dudes were sitting around the table and they And them dudes were sitting around the table and they had a half a guy in the moonshine. And I hit that table and I said, hold it, the captain's here. I'm going to talk to you. And I told them about this AA meeting at that Presbyterian church. And I told them about this dude that stood up behind that rostrum and told the story of his life. And how he had belonged to AA and then he straightened his life out. And I say, do any of you dudes know anything about this AA thing? One of my friends named Roughhouse, who's now dead from alcoholism, spoke up and he said, Em, don't you go back up there no more, boy. And I say, tell me why. He said, just don't go back. And I insisted that he give me some logic, and he said, M, look, you might have sickle cell anemia. Or you might have some other disease, but you can't be no alcoholic. Don't you know that alcoholism is a white man's disease? (laughs) You know, that night I was so happy. (laughs) All I had to do was look in the mirror. I know that I wasn't white. I went home and I woke Ann up and I said, wake up, girl. Ain't got to go back to no more of them old meetings. Rough House said that, that alcoholism is a white man's disease. And I remember the anger in that Alanon's face. And she said this, the hell with Rough House. We going back. I'm so glad. I'm so happy tonight that I can say that she made the decision for us to go back. Because it was that decision that saved our life and our marriage. Brings me to my second miracle, the miracle of recovery. The miracle of recovery. I started to hear what you beautiful people were saying. I started to comprehend the serenity prayer. And I used to love to hear the chairman read from the fifth chapter. Rarely have we seen a person fail who's thoroughly followed our path. And I used to sit there shaking and say, gee, it's a chance for me. And I got me a sponsor. 
And he started to teach me about these steps. He started to teach me about service work. He used to look at me. And he was a little short white guy. I purposely chose him because I felt like I could dominate him. (laughs) But he was the meanest little rascal I've ever met in my life. And he used to look up at me and he said, M, you're going to get out of this program what you put in it. You're going to start doing service work. You don't leave this room until every chair is put up. You'll enter the ashtrays. You'll help make coffee. And then I was the only blacks in that group. I used to be full of resentment. I said, even in this program, these white folks want me to wait on them. <laughs> Fred say to hell with you, do what I say. I'm so glad he was tough. Because I started to love you people. You all started teaching me not only how not to drink. But I started to learn from you all's teaching how to live. You see, I didn't only have a drinking problem. I had a living problem. I remember one night, a blonde lady came up and she put her arms around me. And she said, M, we love you. And I said, what did you say? said, M, we love you. And I went to my sponsor and I told him about this lady. The only kind of love I knew then, my brain was so foggy, was that old funny kind of love. Y'all know what I'm talking about. But my sponsor explained to me, M, that ain't what the gal is talking about. She's talking about the kind of love you're going to find in AA. A love that have no conditions. An unconditional love. A love that has no sex. A love that knows no religion. A love that loves no race, creed, color. But a love for each other. That glues AA and Al-Anon together. To make us go to any length. To help each other find sobriety. And help each other maintain that sobriety. Quite a difference. That's the kind of love that I've found everywhere. That I've been fortunate enough to go. Mississippi. Alabama, Louisiana, Florida, Texas. AA is the same everywhere I've ever gone. Some of my friends used to ask me, are you really going to Alabama? 
to speak to a bunch of white people. He didn't understand that in AA, we love each other. There's no such as racism and all this crazy stuff that goes on around the world. And I found this kind of love everywhere I've ever gone. I could feel it here. I felt it today when, 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 when my friend Reg came up and put his arms around me. A real love. I felt it today at the airport with Smokey and his lovely wife came up and amazed the people around us with their hug and their affection. This love that glues us together. Make us willing to go to any land to help each other stay so. Yes. Miracle of recovery. The weeks turn into months. The months turn into years. I was getting away. The police stopped trying to put me in jail. My dog stopped trying to bite me. I got a few raises on my job. I was able to pay my bills. My lovely wife would miss a day that she didn't tell me she loved me. And when I really knew that I was getting well, those lovely children that I treated so rotten, three beautiful girls and a strong ex-marine that I cursed and made cower in the corner with my 45 mango. I remember one Father's Day. I heard them and Ann in the room talking. And I heard one of the, Ann asked them, did you all get him a Father's Day present? And they said, Mom, we forgot. But I was laying there, tears came in my eyes. I was so happy that after all of the rotten things that I'd done to this lovely family, they had forgiven me. He thought enough of old M to want to buy him a father's day. The next morning I got up and I looked on my dresser. And there was a homemade car. In pencil. This is what it said. Roses are red. Pilots are blue. Daddy sent you quick. I knew that I was on my way. I knew that this program was working. And that brings me to my last and final miracle. The miracle of serenity. The miracle that everyone on the sound of my voice. That's what we are seeking. A little peace. And I can tell you that the peace and serenity that I've found since I came into this fabulous program is way beyond my expectations. This program has put me on a spiritual high that I've never 
got from alcohol or other phonasia that we take to get high. It has given me a sense of security. It has given me a sense of well-being. Morning we got up. I always get up before my wife. Because I like to take my time and shave and bathe and, and just mess around like most old men like to do. And she got up and she said to him, did you hear the news? And I said, yes. Everything's going on okay in the government. She said, no, did you hear the news? Talking about the plane crash on Los Angeles. And she said, you know we got to take a plane today? <laughs> Maybe those Alanons don't have as much faith as me. But I gave her a lecture. I said, listen to me. God is in charge. That is what this program has given to me. Plane crash in Los Angeles had nothing to do with the plane that was coming to Omaha, Nebraska. And the same higher power that saved my life in this fabulous program, he would be with me on that airplane. And I was able to calm her down, and I think that we had one of the best trips, flying, that we ever had. That's the way my life goes now. Many times I go out on my patio in the morning and maybe some of my neighbors think I'm crazy. I don't give a damn. But I yell at the top of my voice. Come on, world. Come on, world, with your heartaches. Come on, with your disappointments. Go ahead, Saddam Hussein, do your thing. Because I know it ain't nothing you can put on old M. Gilmer today that me and God can't teach him. It's in the promises that if I work this program the best of my ability, everything's going to be all right. And I believe that tomorrow. You know, I think, and think how fortunate we are. It brings joy to me. And I say to anybody, alcoholics, Al-Anon, if this feeling hasn't come to you, I just suggest that you keep coming back. One day, it will. The joy that I see when I see people come into this program sick, disgusted, and see the miracles happen and see their life change, it brings joy to my heart. And if I do nothing else in the days I have left, I hope that I can be at that door when the poor suffering alcoholics that are still out there in the highways and hedges Coming to these doors, seeking relief, 
like O.M. did night and off years ago. I hope I will be there. Hold out the hand of fellowship and give them what we now have. Because those people out there, I know, they would rather see a sermon than to hear one any day. They would have rather have someone walk along beside them than merely show them the way. The eye is a fellow pupil. It's more willing than the ear. Fine counsel is always confusing. But example is always clear. I hope I can be an example as I travel around this country that the people knew me when can say if old M. Gilmer can do it, I can too. I believe all of us are blessed. I leave you with this. The light of God surrounds us. The love of God enfolds. The power of God protects us. And the presence of God watches over us. Because wherever we are, God is in all places. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.